головой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. One of the great developments in scholarship on the Soviet Union over the last 20 years has been the increased attention to ethnicity, nationality policy, and empire. This has not always been the case. When my guest Ronald Suni began publishing, topics related to ethnicity and nationhood were esoteric and peripheral. But thanks to his pioneering work in the 1970s and 1980s, books on the experience of Roma, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Georgians, Azeris, and other groups are increasingly part of the general narrative of Soviet history. So I turned to Sunni for some reflection on his career and his work. Ronald Grigor Sunni is the William H. Sewell Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History at the University of Michigan, Emeritus Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago, and senior researcher at the National Research University, the Higher School of Economics in St. Petersburg. He is the author of many books, including The Baku Commune 1917-1918, Class and Nationality in the Russian Revolution, Armenia in the 20th Century, The Making of the Georgian Nation, Looking Towards Ararat, Armenia in Modern History, The Revenge of the Past, Nationalism, Revolution, and the Collapse of the Soviet Union, The Soviet Experiment, Russia, the USSR, and the Successor States, and They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. His most recent book is Red Flag Unfurled, History, Historians, and the Russian Revolution, published by Verso. Here's Ron Suni. So, you have this new collection of essays, uh, Red Flag Unfurled, and in, in it, in the introduction, you give a brief excursion into autobiography, and I found this section really quite interesting to hear a bit about your upbringing, um, the various, you know, conflicts with that upbringing. Um, so, how did your life experience shape your interest and approach to the history of the Soviet Union? Absolutely directly. I began in some ways becoming interested in Russia and the Soviet Union because of my father, who had been born, well, he was actually born technically in Turkey, but they were citizens or subjects of the Russian Empire. And he spent the revolutionary years, the war years and the revolutionary years as a young boy in Tbilisi, Tiflis. And he would tell us tales at, at dinner about his experiences and when the Mensheviks fled from Georgia and when the Bolsheviks came in and so forth. And so, you know, as a kid, this was very romantic and very exciting and I wanted to know more. And so I think from the very beginning, that was important. 
The second thing was that it was the years of the Cold War. Uh, it was the late 1940s and the early 1950s. And there was the Red Scare again, another Red Scare, the McCarthy period. Uh, but my father was the son of a composer, an Armenian ethnomusicologist and composer, Greek Sunni, who had been a member of the Communist Party. And I never knew Sunni, as we called him. He died the year before I was born. But he was obviously a great influence on my father, and he loved uh, Soviet Union, and, and he considered himself a Marxist, and he had been a kind of nationalist revolutionary before that. And so all that was in the air. And then there was this funny incident, which now seems funny, but at the time probably wasn't so funny, uh, when it would be about 1950, 1951, I was uh, 10 or 11 years old, I had to do a book report or some kind of report in school. And I'm looking through the World Book Encyclopedia, which was the Wikipedia of its day. And um, I, I, my father said, why don't you give a talk on how the Soviet Union is not as bad as people think? So this little kid, very skinny little kid, looks up all the stuff and finds out, oh, they built so many cities the size of San Francisco after the war. They beat the fascists. They produce so many tons of pig iron, and I go in and give this report. And the teacher blanched. She turned white, you know, and she couldn't believe that, you know, here in her class was this little red. And so um, she asked, where did I find this? And what are you? And I said, my daddy told me this. So I did this report. And after that, I was known in school as Comrade Sunni until I graduated from high school. So in some ways, the career and the going on to Swarthmore College and then to the, to Columbia and studying the Soviet Union was, in a sense, to figure out what this was actually about, you know, through the the veil of the Cold War, you know, and our generation, I'd say the the you know shisti of the uh, of the of the uh, in America that is the '60s kids, you know, anti-war, uh, pro-civil rights, and all of that began to suspect this grand hegemonic narrative about the Soviet Union. So that was the that was the impetus. You know, and the other thing I, I found interesting in your your retelling of your your life story is that you you grew up in, you know, your dad was sympathetic to the Soviet Union and grew up in a fairly liberal leftist household, but at the same time you also grew up in an Armenian household, right? And so how did this the these two things mesh this uh, kind of Armenian identity? I think at one point you say how your your grandmother said, you know, you have to marry an Armenian. And like there's no negotiation about that. Uh, so how did these two this identity, national identity, and also your polit the political atmosphere kind of mesh together? Well, my parents decided at some point, they were both Armenian speakers, my mother's language, she was born in the United States, but she was Armenian. And she, um, her first language is Armenian. She told the story that when she went to kindergarten at age five, she came home crying because no one understood her. Uh, she didn't, they didn't speak Armenian, which was a, you know, an affront to her. Uh, in any case, but they decided in the 40s that my sister Linda and I would become real Americans and we would not speak Armenian. So they didn't speak to us in Armenian. Uh, and we, I learned Armenian in graduate school as a foreign language. Uh, so this was, this was a different thing. This generation wanted you to become American. 
they were Armenian. They, my father was a chorus director and there were rehearsals all the time. The food was Armenian. The grandparents were Armenian. There was a kind of Armenian culture. But I was in the strange position where I was American or in Armenian, you say Amerikatsi, but I was also Armenian. And my grandmother, I think I tell this story somewhere, my grandmother said, you know, Anonk Amerikatsi, they're Americans, those other people. Anonk Odaren, they're foreigners. Menk Hayenk, we're Armenian, we're not foreigners. So here we were living in America and we were Armenian, but those Americans were foreigners. And so I had this sort of kind of strange feeling that uh, I was both American, but also different. And that also helped. It gave me a kind of distance and a sense of, of uh, I wouldn't say alienation, because I never felt discrimination. I mean, nobody knew what Armenians were. Uh, but, but I felt a kind of healthy distance from close identification with Ar Armenian things, uh, with, with American things, I think. I'll give you one more example, funny example that just came to mind. At some point, because I, I at that time had a very good voice and I was a kind of actor, now I'm in junior high school or something, uh, the coach of the football team uh, said to me, we'd like you to give the talk at the thanks big Thanksgiving Day game. You'll be the announcer for this celebration we're going to have. And I said, oh, that's great. Thank you very much. It was a great honor. Then he gave me the script. And the script was all about how awful things were in the Soviet Union. There was slavery. Uh, there was a big prison camp. But in America, it was freedom and so forth and so on. Right. Do you think that he... he did that gave that to you i mean not not because you were you know comrade sunni but maybe but also because he you know he knew being armenian you you know your family comes from that part of the world that i actually don't know i think it was only because i was known at school already as this this actor you know uh i think it was more that way so so this he gives me the script I read it and I realize I can't betray my principles. I can't say these kinds of propagandistic things. And so I thought, I'll go and protest and he'll change it or something. And I go in and I hand him the script and say, I can't say this. Oh, okay. He takes it away. And that was it. I was finished and I was out. So you learn, you learn that, you know, there's only so far you can push in this. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the, this idea that you, uh, or at least the, put forward by your grandmother, um, that your your for your your those people are foreigners. Uh, that is the Americans, and then your your sense of kind of being on the periphery because you know your your scholarly work is kind of addressed a lot of these questions. Um, you know, in, in several of your books, uh, you look at the Soviet Union from the perspective of the South Caucasus, right? You wrote a book about your first book on the Baku Commune in Azerbaijan. You wrote a book on Armenia and in Georgia. So, how does the um, the revolution in the Soviet system more generally look like from the periphery, from the South Caucasus? It looks different. It looks very different. So when I first went to uh, the South Caucasus, when I went to Armenia and Georgia and Azerbaijan, at that time I could go. Now it's more difficult to go. Being Armenian, I can't go. They say to me, you know, they invite me and then they say, but we can't guarantee your safety. So I decide not to go. Uh, but but at the time, in, and the first visit was in 1964, imagine, I was there, I was in flying from Tashkent, uh, visiting relatives to Leningrad when Khrushchev fell, so I go way back, right? But the, the impressions were, were amazing, because what you found was these were different countries, that Armenia and Georgia, 
and Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan had their own cultures, they had their own leaderships, they were different in their cuisine and, and all kinds of things, national things were preserved, even promoted, at least in that southern tier of the Soviet Union. It may be different in Ukraine or Belarus or the Baltic countries. And so I was impressed that something was wrong with the way we understood Soviet nationality policy, because the major hegemonic discourse at the time was the kind of Robert Conquest, Richard Pipe's view that it was all about conquest and russification and suppression of nationality. Well, it was certainly about suppression of nationalism and local sovereignty, etc. No question about that. This was an empire run from Moscow. But it was at the same time this peculiar empire where resources were funneled from the center to the peripheries, that development was taking place, uh, and where national cultures were in many cases not only being preserved but being promoted uh, and regenerated, etc. So that that idea and talking to some of my my colleagues uh, and and friends in in Armenia and Georgia in Moscow led to this view, which in some ways I, I'm happy to say was a kind of paradigm shift in thinking about nationality policy, that this was not the graveyard of nationalities. This wasn't the prison, uh, prison of nationalities, but was the crucible of kind of uh, development of national cultures within all the strict limits of Soviet ideology and Soviet political possibilities. And that, that paradigm shift, that view which I first articulated in the 70s and 80s in some of my work, um, and actually the first time I think was in an article in the New Left Review, uh, that became dominant. If you look at Yuri Snotskin's work and, and uh, um, Francine Hirsch and, and uh, uh, Terry Martin, that became a, a view that, that later opened up a whole new way of looking at the developments. And of course, the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s helped that because suddenly these peoples who no one seemed to care about or know, everyone's looking at the center, not the periphery, began to express themselves. And where'd that all come from? Right, exactly. Because I guess the assumption was that all of this was, you know, crushed in a, in a certain way. But so what was the reception? I mean, you know, as you said, the, the standard view, particularly, you know, in, in the early when you started publishing in the 70s and, and, and in the early 80s around the whole, you know, revisionist um, kind of explosion of, of new scholars scholarship on, on in social history on the Soviet Union. What was the reception of, of your positions on taking a different view of nationalities as less of a as a prison house of nations? The, in the in the first book in the, the Baku Commune, which was you know what I was trying to do, and and I think others of that generation were also trying to do, was to look at the Soviet Union uh, not through the lens of opposition and hostility, but understanding. So if anything, politically we were detentist. We wanted a better relationship, uh, and you would be criticized for that. So when I handed the manuscript to Princeton of that first book, The Baku Commune, which was published in 1972, so we're well into the Cold War here, um, there was criticism. Uh, he's too friendly. Uh, it's not critical enough. Uh, he, he emphasizes class too much. And I worked out, uh, you know, that story and tried to show the ways in which this was relevant. The book was about how 
class identities morph into national identities from 1917 to 1918. And uh, Princeton being a wonderful press and publisher of several of my books, uh, eventually let it, you know, gave it the imprimatur and the book was published and it was well received as far as anyone read it. It was a relatively esoteric topic. Still a good book, by the way. So there was, there was that. Um, but it was not the, the view of, of this being, the Soviet Union being uh, in many ways positive about nationalities. And by the way, never always and never everywhere, right? This is a regime that also moved North Caucasian peoples and others into Central Asia or Siberia or whatever. There was a lot of destruction uh, uh, and repression as well. And that, that story, telling both sides of that story was always difficult because you were, if you weren't almost totally condemnatory, you were an apologist, right? You were, you were pink, you were uh, a fellow traveler or whatever. So that did, that did uh, arise. I don't remember being troubled by it. I always enjoyed it. I liked being a little bit provocative and um, got away with it. The sense of humor helps too. Yeah, certainly, I would imagine. <laughs> um, so since uh, you know your work over the years has dealt with these issues of, of nationality, nationhood, and empire uh, within the Soviet context, how do you understand these things working in the Soviet context versus, say, how they're understood, say, in outside the Soviet Union? At the at the very time that uh, I was working on the Soviet nationalities, particularly in Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, there was a very important new way of looking at nations and nationalism developing in the West. By the way, first of all, by certain non-Marxist and then Marxist uh, writers, right? So you're talking about uh, Eli Kadori and Benedict Anderson, and then among the Marxists, Benedict Anderson, most importantly, uh, and, uh, and uh, Eric Hobsbawm and so forth, who are trying to make sense of of this phenomena of nationalism. And there was this move toward this idea that nations are not primordial, given, natural, but constructed, imagined, invented, modern, and so forth. And that that worked so beautifully with the push that was developing in my work and other people's work. I'm thinking of someone like Teresa Rakowska Harmstone, who didn't buy this or have this theory exactly, but she, her work on Tajikistan and elsewhere pushed in this direction uh, th that, that, that nations are made. And in the case of the Soviet Union, they're made directly through a deliberate policy of the Soviet government, right? And that was, that was, that was a beautiful mix of theory and empirical uh, investigation. And that doesn't always happen. That is, there are nations or uh, ethnic collectivities of various kinds, which are formed in different ways, more from below or by independent in intellectuals. But here was an empire, and I call the Soviet Union an empire deliberately, which indeed fostered the development of national nationality and nationalisms. So how do you, because uh, I know this is a, a contentious subject in, in terms of, you know, the looking at the Soviet Union as an empire, how does it fit with empires like the British Empire or the French Empire? When Val Kivelson and I did this book called Russia's Empires, which I'm very proud of, and I think it was just phenomenal working with her. She's so brilliant and wonderful. Um, 
and and we developed with real struggle going back and forth teaching together writing the book uh, an idea of empire and what we were doing in that book is talking about empire states contiguous empire states so we were talking about state formation there are similarities between russia or the austro-hungarians or the ottomans those are the ones i know best and overseas empires as well and one of the the one or two of the major things were and this has been emphasized by other people this is not totally new but we tried to bring it synthetically into a story about russia and the soviet union empires are about difference difference that is then inscribed in a hierarchical unequal way they are inegalitarian so some people are different and superior and lots of other peoples or institutions are inferior and Therefore, that difference inscribed as, as superior, inferior, justifies the rule of some over others. So that's very different from a nation state where everyone, at least theoretically in an ideal type way, is supposed to be equal uh, and has the right to rule themselves. And that seems to me key to Russia and very key to the Soviet Union. Though in the Soviet case, there was another project also going on. This Soviet empire, with all of its inequalities and its development of non-Russian peoples, right, at the same time was forming a collective shared identity, something that Tsarism never quite could do. And that's what we call Sovietsky Narod, the Soviet people, not Nazia, not nation, but a Soviet people. So two things are going on, which ultimately, it seems to me, are intention the development of non-Russian national cultures and somewhat, after Stalin, autonomous political elites, and at the same time, a collective shared identity of Soviet patriotism, that is Sovietsky Narod. And those things ultimately, but very late, will pull apart. Yeah, I, I wanna get, get to that especially, but before that, you know, Along with you know the promotion uh, of of national identity and cultures, the the Soviet Union was also based particularly you know before the war on class. So how did how did nationality and class intersect in in this Soviet experience? Well, I, I gave some lectures at at um, uh, Stanford in nineteen ninety and which eventually became a book called The Revenge of the Past, Nationalism, Revolution, and the uh, Collapse of the Soviet Union. And in that book, I made the argument that I don't think it's been that well received or, or, or propagated, that there was a very interesting uh, coincidence uh, of class and nationality already in the Russian Empire. Some peoples, let's say Ukrainians or Estonians or Latvians, were ethnically whatever they were, but at the same time, they were largely peasants. And other groups like Baltic Germans or Armenians in Tiflis were not only ethnic groups, but they were social classes. And the relationship between them and other nationalities was one of social differentiation as well as ethnic differentiation. So there was an overlap between class and nationality uh, in much of the former Soviet Union. And it created problems, you know, that say Lithuanians were out in the countryside, but the city of Vilno, Vilnius, 
uh, was occupied or, or, or inhabited by Poles and Jews and maybe Russians and some others. Uh, so there was there was this this strange uh, phenomena of of ethnicities, nationalities being also something like social classes, uh, and that seemed to me uh, a very interesting idea. The second idea of that book was that when you actually look at the revolution itself before 1917 and in 1917, nationalism. That is the expression that these people ought to have the right to rule themselves and maybe even an independent state and a piece of the world's territory as their homeland. All of that stuff was relatively weak. That is, we had looked at the story of nations and empires as the inevitable development and, and renaissance of a natural nationalism against the artificiality of, of empire. But when you actually looked at the story, you find empire had its own loyalties, its own patriots, its own uh, uh, affections, etc. And nationalism had to struggle. Uh, and often it was, in the Russian case, isolated in a small urban nationalist intelligentsia. Uh, so I wanted to show that, that this, was not, was, this was neither a natural process, nor was it a very widespread process until uh, it was obviously encouraged by the war and by certain imperial powers who were trying to exploit various nationalisms, the Germans in particular. And, and it became much more important with the collapse of the state and the economy in the Russian Civil War. But ultimately, unlike the Pipes paradigm, which is that nationalisms are natural and Bolshevism is artificial, and therefore it's Moscow conquering these peripheries, I tried to argue uh, that, in fact, there's a, a kind of much more complex struggle between socialists of various kinds, peasant socialists and anarchists, uh, nationalists uh, uh, in the cities, etc. Uh, and so the, war, the whole civil war has to be understood in that way as a complex struggle between various kinds of affiliations and loyalties, not one that sort of has the imprimatur of history and nature and the other is artificial and therefore illegitimate. You know, the, the revolutionary period in the Civil War uh, as, as a, a kind of, you know, spark for increasing kind of national identification and nationalism as such, it's, it's interesting. And then you have, the, of course, the Soviet system, which, you know, clamps down really, really hard on nationalism and any kind of separatism or autonomy, but develops national cultures. And in some cases, particularly in Central Asia, actually creates them in many respects. You argue in that, that book, Revenge of the Past, that it's nationalism that, that really leads to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So what role did nationalism play in that, the process of the Soviet Union's collapse? Actually, uh, that book is often misunderstood, right? And maybe partly because uh, in the introduction or the preface, Norman Neymar makes an argument like the one you just made, but I, I think I wasn't as clear as I should have been. Uh, there, my view was the Soviet, and my view still is the Soviet Union collapsed because the center committed suicide, because Gorbachev launched this reform without knowing what he was doing or where he was going. And when the center you know, became weaker and weaker, uh, people resorted to what was available, the resources they had, 
which was the local, the national, etc. If you think about the referendum, the famous March referendum of 1991, when 76% of the peoples who voted voted to keep the Soviet Union. This was not, a, this was not a, an empire that had to be given up. It had to be changed, etc. Uh, but once it fails, once the coup takes place in August, etc., then, you know, there's no, there's no ship to stay on. Everyone starts fleeing in their rowboats in different ways. Uh, nationalism is there. It's available. Uh, a national identity is available. But I would say one should argue and one should emphasize that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, many of these new states had to then build nations within them to justify their new national independence. The, the, the ingredients were there. The Soviets had provided those ingredients to a certain degree. But now you had to create new mythologies about Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, uh, take down Lenin and put up Timur or whatever. Uh, in order to justify this new national independence. So nationalism is important, but it's always exaggerated. You know, it's always exaggerated. It's because it seems to be the way of the world. So you, so you would basically, what you're saying is that the, the post-Soviet experience uh, is, is really key for the development of nationalism, particularly for the establishment of, of independent states like Ukraine or certainly in the South Caucasus. Right. And you, you know well as anyone how difficult that process has been, right? How, how do you create a Ukrainian nation when it's made up of all these very different pieces, different linguistic groups, etc.? It's a fractured nation. It's been very, very difficult to do that. It's been hard in Moldova. It's been hard in Georgia. Armenia is okay because Armenia is 90 plus percent, almost 100 percent Armenian. And anyone they didn't like that wasn't Armenian, like Azerbaijanis, they got rid of. Uh, in exchange with Azerbaijan, who got rid of Armenians. So, you know, they, th this process of homogenization and creating of national cultures is an ongoing process. I like to put it this way. You can take these countries out of the Soviet Union, but you can't take the Soviet Union out of those countries so easily, right? There's still a Soviet culture. There's still ideas that we lived differently in the past. Uh, and the effort to make them homogenous, national-oriented countries is an ongoing process, which is still, uh, you know, occurring today and is a struggle. Uh, in some places, it's more successful, like the Baltic countries, than in others. What about in Russia? Because one of the complaints, of course, by, you know, Russian ethno-nationalists is that Russia has never been a nation state, and this is one of the problems. It, and, and of course, now, you know, if you read the media, there, the, the idea of Russian nationalism is, is constantly kind of bandied about. So how do you understand Russia, post-Soviet Russia, in terms of a Russian national identity or even having to deal with it as a multi-ethnic uh, federation? In the Soviet period, there was justifiably complaints by the part of, of certain parts of the intelligentsia and of the regime that Russia was not being promoted as a nation, right? Because this, this was part of Leninist nationality policy that, that, that great power nationalism was not to be fostered. And so Russia didn't have all the institutions that many of the non-Russian republics had. And there was this, this, this wave of more conservative nationalism. What's interesting is that uh, for me is that it was, it's always exaggerated. It wasn't that powerful. Nationalists did not win elections in Russia in the early post-Soviet period or the late Soviet period. Uh, that may be changing now. The Russia 
in, in our book, Val and I argue that Russia is more like a nation state today than it's ever been in its history. That it's there are imperial features, of course, that, that is empire and nation are not mutually exclusive. They work together often, but it's more like a nation. And of course, in the last years, as uh, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, Putin himself, who had begun as a good communist and anti-nationalist even in his early years, has turned and used the nationalism card, which is always a cheap shot. It's always available. You know, it's like anti-Semitism. It's there, right? You want to exploit it, exploit it. Oh, anti-immigration feeling. Oh, it's there. Uh, it just takes uh, a callous or, or opportunistic leader to use it. And he's turned that way, and, and he did experience a real bump in his popularity upward uh, precisely through that. Now, that may be failing because uh, a lot of uh, the Western critics who talk about what Putin thinks or what Russian ideologies today uh, really radically oversimplify a very, very complex picture. Um, at a conference recently in Tartu, I heard some wonderful papers by people who really look at this stuff seriously. You know, the whole thing about, oh, this Dugin and that Eurasianist and this uh, Ilin or this guy there. There's an incredibly complicated and ongoing discussion in Russia. They're still trying to find out who they are and what their national identity is. And in some ways it's up for grabs. Of course it could go in a bad direction. In some ways I think it's going in a bad direction right now. Uh, but there are a lot of different things going on uh, in, in Russia, and one can't predict that easily which one will, will, will come out. But the, the unbelievably irresponsible call of some people, I won't mention any names, uh, but very prominent people, that Russia is fascist or that it's totalitarian uh, or autocratic is not only absurd but harmful. No, I, my impression is, is that even though, you know, Putin, as you said, has played this uh, nationalist card, um, you know, talking about the Ruski Mir and this kind of stuff around 2014, it certainly has ebbed in the last couple of years. But at the same time, even when he plays this card, the Russian government is very sensitive to, you know, national nationalist strife within the Russian Federation. I mean, they, 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 they and they seem to be even somewhat cautious in their practice towards Russian nationalism as well. I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, if I had to generalize simply about what Putin is about, he's about paryadik and stabilnost, order and stability. And at the moment, he's in a very difficult situation. The country is very weak. Uh, you know, they spend, what, less than 10% of what we spend on defense, not counting NATO. The economy could be in trouble soon or is in trouble. Uh, so he's playing a very weak hand. He's playing it rather well, actually, but a very weak hand. And, and this I new isolation that's resulted from the Ukrainian crisis and, and uh, other things uh, is not working well for Russia. And they got their feet deep in various puddles of mud. And Putin, I think, is struggling to find a way out. We'll see what happens. How do you, uh, you you mentioned this a little bit, but I want you to go into more detail. How do you understand the legacy of of Soviet rule in the Caucasus and in Central Asia? It's it's dissipating over time, obviously as it must. It's over a quarter century since the Soviet Union was gone. But but when you visit there, I was just in in uh, Georgia and Armenia a few weeks ago. When you visit there, 
you realize that so many things that you would call Sovietsky still exist, you know, certain feelings, uh, certain kind of what I would even call Soviet humanism, uh, that still exists, like certain values that people inculcated for a long time. Those, those things are still, the sense that the state ought to help people, that welfare is a responsibility of governors, those kinds of things that in America are quite weak, you still, you can still find. Now, how long that will persist and so forth in a rather uh, uh, rapidly capitalist uh, environment is hard to predict, but it's there. Um, there are, I would say at the moment, uh, hopeful signs, hopeful signs, that is particularly in Armenia where there was a kind of democratic revolution. Uh, Georgia is trying to find its way out as well. But there are also negative uh, vestiges. The Soviets created or helped to create these homogeneous territorialized nation states. And that, that kind of primordial nationalism, which I think willy-nilly they created, particularly in the late Soviet period, uh, exists. And nationalism is still the name of the game, though the younger generation uh, is moving and questioning things in a very healthy way. Not a lot. For instance, I'll give you a personal example. Uh, when I wrote uh, my books on these, some of these republics, The Making of the Georgian Nation, right, which uh, I wrote uh, in the 80s and 90s, um, it was received very badly in, in, in late Soviet uh, Georgia. You know, what is this Armenian, this leftist writing about our culture? And he says we were, we were only made as a nation in the 19th century and that the Soviets uh, helped make a nation. No, we're ancient and primordial and all the rest. And the book was, was castigated. Uh, in, in that period. Now it's celebrated. I mean, I, I now find, I'm not saying everybody, but, but in Georgia now people are interested in these new ideas and learning history in a new way. Uh, and they understand how fraught nationalism was and how nationalism, a kind of chauvinistic Georgian nationalism, helped fracture that country, right? And caused problems that, that, that they should have anticipated. In Armenia as well, um, a book I wrote called Looking Toward Ararat, Armenia in Modern History uh, has, was largely disregarded or was, was attacked. There were, there were books written against the book, in fact, um, and that still exists in parts of the Armenian Academy and University. But there's another generation which reads this stuff, which says, wow, this is, this is really interesting. Uh, our nations are made and remade and uh, the work of intellectuals and patriotic uh, poets and, and statesmen are key to whether the nation, how the nation is made, what form of imagination will, be ta will take place. So that's really a healthy development and I'm, I'm very pleased. Now, you, uh, you wrote a book two or three years ago, I think now, on the Armenian Genocide. And, and in uh, They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide, you write that whatever else they were, the young Turks who carried out the genocide were never purely Turkish ethno-nationalists, never religious fanatics, but remained Ottoman modernizers in their fundamental self-conception. They were primarily state imperialists, empire preservers, rather than the founders of an ethnic nation state. Um, so why is this aspect of the Young Turks uh, important for understanding the causes and the reasoning for the Armenian Genocide? That's an excellent question, Sean. That's the central 
problem with the book or the question that I tried to answer. And it's one that that people have reacted to uh, and, and questioned. Uh, I was trying to make a distinction between empire and nation in which uh, empire is again this state in which some people, a kind of Herrenvolk, if you like, uh, a ruling nationality or a ruling institution or a ruling group has the right because they're superior to rule over others uh, versus an ideal type of a nation which is about not about difference in hierarchy institutionalized but some kind of equality if even if fictive and homogeneity and the Kemalist project which occurs after the Ottoman period is precisely a nation building project an enforced equality and homogenization of Anatolia, of, of the, the, what is now the Turkish Republic. But the Young Turks, I argue in the book, while, while having very nationalistic and pro-Turkish and Turkic feelings and ambitions, and wanting to change the demography of Anatolia and make it more Turkic and more Islamic, nevertheless, we're not going to give up the Arab countries, the Middle East, they were even thinking of expansion into the Caucasus. And so they still had an imperial idea that yes, Turks will be on top, we will be the heaven folk, the ruling nationality, and we will rule over these other peoples, a, a new empire that will be more Turkic, more Islamic, but still an empire, not an ethno-national state. So there are definitely, there's a kind of toxic mixture of of various kinds of Turkic nationalisms, which was actually rather weak at that time. It's again exaggerated, but it's there if you read intellectuals and so forth. Uh, and this project of, uh, of, of what ultimately becomes genocide, the removal of the Armenians. And one of the reasons why this was important is because in much of the historiography, particularly among Armenians of a generation or so ago, the view of the genocide was, there was a genocide, the Turks carried it out. It doesn't need much explanation. They're Turks. That's what they do, those people. And so there was a kind of culturalist, racialist, whatever you want to call it, view. And I remember when I when I proposed my, my view that the, the young Turks were modernizers and had this image, and, and ultimately they, in a rather um, contingent moment, decide to move toward genocide, and they absolutely did that. When I proposed that view, which is against this more essentialist view that Turks are always doing this, that the median massacres of the 90s and the pogrom in Adana in 1909 and the genocide are all part of a single story. When I propose that, uh, some prominent uh, Armenian uh, uh, um, uh, historians said, Ronald, if you try to explain the genocide, why they did this, you will rationalize it and then you will justify it. And because I thought, I said, but, but, you know, this is what we do. This is what historians are supposed to do. We're trying to find out why a government that had been friendly to Armenians, you know, in a kind of funny way, worked with them, was constitutionalist and, and so forth, turned uh, into this radical, fanatical uh, mass killers. Uh, well, how do we explain that? Uh, and so explanation is our job, I hope. I've done that in some way, uh, but Armenians have not received this well. There's criticism. The book has is, is been translated into Turkish by an Armenian press in Istanbul, but is, is neglected or, or simply avoided uh, 
effaced in Armenia itself. How do you place the the genocide within the larger uh, international context going on? Because, you know, during you have a war, a world war, you have external powers, you have also the idea of, you know, moving people and ideas of ethnic groups as fifth colonists and and dangerous peoples is quite prominent throughout the entire region. Um, So how does how does the, the context also uh, influence this turn to to violence by the Turks? The context is key. Uh, that is, some people have argued World War I was simply the opportunity, the mask behind which a genocide could be carried out. That may be part of it. But the war itself was a period of increased sense of danger, of existential threat. Uh, they were fighting, the Ottomans were fighting on nine different fronts, if I have it right in my memory, uh, the British, the French, the Russians, uh, and so forth. And they, they, were, they were fearful. And then they imagined after the defeat of the battle at the Battle of Sadi Kamish uh, in the winter of 14, 1915, that the Armenians were an internal threat and they had to be removed, right? And so the war is key to that. Now, there are similar events, you know, movings of peoples, the Jews from Galicia, the uh, Ajarians from, from the Caucasus, but those are small events. They're not insignificant, but they do not take on the dimensions of the mass killing, forced conversions, and dispersion and starvation of the Armenians, which in which hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million or more, uh, were lost their lives and certainly had their lives uh, completely changed. Uh, that the Armenian genocide, which has been peripheralized in the history of World War One, in fact, is the greatest atrocity. There are lots of atrocities in this war. There are horrific scenes of of killing on the Western Front and on the Eastern Front, but the Armenian genocide is is the most horrific instance of deliberate state policy of annihilation. And it's a precursor uh, for other events as Adolf Hitler and and the Nazis and others understood. Why do you think it's been relegated to such a kind of diminished place in in our understanding of of that period in World War I specifically? Several things contributed to that. One, it's far from the center of Europe. It's in Eastern Anatolia. Uh, It was not well known. It was well known during the war, but after the war, when Turkey is reintegrated into the international system with the Treaty of Lausanne, which doesn't mention the Armenians, when Armenia, the only existent Armenia is now Soviet Armenia, it's on the other side of the, the Iron Curtain, uh, when those things happen, uh, when people want better relations with Turkey, um, uh, there's oil and so forth, then um, they, they, this was peripheralized. And Armenians themselves, now dispersed in different countries, in Europe and in the United States, themselves were so traumatized, they spent uh, the next generation building their communities, building churches, uh, you know, getting back on their feet. And it's only about 50 years later, around 1965, the 50th anniversary, that that this kind of genocide consciousness, what happened to the Armenians, begins to uh, effervesce outside of the Armenian community, and people take it on. And that's partly a product of, uh, in the United States at least, of the generation of the civil rights movement, the new Holocaust consciousness, uh, and now, of course, it's everywhere. I mean, it's uh, Armenian genocide is now a legitimate topic. There are courses on it. There are books about it. Uh, so 
in some ways, the, the Turkish government uh, and the denialists have lost the argument, but it took a hundred years for that to happen. Now, now uh, having come, I you know, come from LA, so I know how large the genocide um, informs uh, the Armenian community there and its sense of itself as Armenian. How does the genocide figure in Armenia, Armenian national identity in Armenia today? Uh, under the Soviets, it didn't function very much, and, and the Soviets didn't raise this issue officially, but the Armenian people sort of knew about it, of course, and they demonstrated in 1965 and demanded recognition and Mer uh, Hoger, they said, our lands, they went our lands back uh, and all of this stuff. And eventually the Soviets gave in and allowed them to build a monument at Tsitsarnak Abert in Yerevan, where on April 24th, people march and commemorate the genocide. Uh, today, it's it's become central to Armenian uh, identity in Armenia as well. Uh, it's a shared thing. That is, Armenians are, like many small nations, fractured into different political parties, religious groups, etc. But on April 24th, they all come together. And this remains a kind of deep wound that won't heal because it's not recognized by the very perpetrators. Uh, so, uh, that remains a very, very powerful source of, of collective identity. Has that collective identity been something that the government promotes? Because you also have Armenian communities in, say, well, I guess they're diaspora communities in Lebanon and, and other places around the greater Middle East. So is, is that part of the project for creating a you know, post-Soviet Armenia? That's a very good point. I, I would say, yes, it's... It's not as loud and noisy as you might expect, but it's there. And even in the demonstrations uh, that led to this democratic takeover or democratic reversal in, in Armenia with this new government of uh, Nikol Pashinyan, the, the theme was there. And it's not accidental that the actual change of government took place in those April holidays, in those days, when people were moving around and thinking about and demonstrating for the genocide. So it's part of what makes Armenia, but Armenia has lots of problems. Uh, it's isolated, uh, its borders are with Turkey and Azerbaijan are closed. Um, it needs to develop its empire. I mean, it's, it's economy, excuse me. Uh, it has uh, more people, more Armenians outside of Armenia than in Armenia. It fears uh, suffering from what they call a white genocide, that is the emigration of something like 40% of the population. So they've got a lot of problems. But right now, uh, my last impression when I was there just uh, a few, you know, a month ago, uh, was that they are happy, they're enthusiastic, they're hopeful that this is one bright spot in the world where democracy might be taking hold as everywhere else countries seem to move, be moving uh, in a different direction against liberal democracy. In the uh, red flag unfurled, you know, it's republication of several of your essays from over the years. And and one of one of the interesting ones is is you give a very long kind of evaluation of, of how the West has written the history of the Soviet Union. So in, in your evaluation of Western historiography, uh, how did they understand the Soviet experiment? It, it, that essay, which I like very much, you can imagine I like it, um, tries to show, it's a kind of sociology of knowledge essay, I guess, 
tries to show uh, how the different views on the Soviet Union, they were never totally harmonious or homogenous, were influenced by the context, the political context of its times. So, you know, there's enthusiasm for the revolution at first, there's the, the disgust and horrors of Stalinism that divides the intelligentsia in the West. Uh, there's the war period when people are enthusiastic about the Soviet Union because it's our ally and the major force against fascism. And then the Cold War. And I grew up during the Cold War and the Cold War had a deep effect on, on historiography and distorted it in many ways. But by the 60s, with the coming of uh, when, when Western and particularly American foreign policy became began to be questioned by a younger generation, particularly because of our adventure, this disastrous adventure in Vietnam, uh, a new generation of, or you could call them radical historians and then social historians, began to look at the Soviet Union in new ways, and we were able to go there. So uh, I, I was on the exchange program in 1965, 1966, and in my cohort, uh, there were many of us who were were surprised by what the Soviet Union was. It wasn't this totalitarian prison camp. All kinds of interesting things happened. It was repressive. Uh, the police, there was a police present. People were fearful of talking to Americans. But there was also a kind of interesting opening and, and uh, wonderful people and, and nuances that you could appreciate only by being there. And so a new generation of political scientists and historians and others began to look at the Soviet Union in a new way. And I would say, Sean, your generation and those behind you are doing fantastic work. Uh, obviously, things happened after the Soviet Union fell and the archives open. Um, but, but it's not just that. It's that they're not fighting the old ghosts of communism, anti-communism. In my view, anti-communism was a disease. You don't have to be pro-communist and you don't, but Anti-communism was uh, um, a kind of um, view that you had to sort of take a polemical um, negative view of the Soviet Union and not be, and you were fearful of being apologetic. And that did distort things. That's, that largely that's, that's gone. There are a few outliers and they write popular books, but still um, the scholarship, the kinds of academic works, the dissertations, they're extraordinary. Uh, and and um, uh, we'll get a, a more complex, more nuanced view of the Soviet Union and of hopefully eventually of Russia today. Now, one more thing I would say about that is there's such incredible hostility and distortions about Russia today in the mass media, uh, even in the liberal community, the Democratic Party. Um, and of course, the, the, the loudest voices are uh, uh, also uh, shaping people's views. And if you're sympathetic to Russia or tried to be more nuanced, suddenly you're in the Trump camp. You're in a very odd position here. So, but that doesn't seem to me to be influencing scholarship. Scholarship goes on and uh, it's very exciting to read what people are finding. Yeah, I I mean, I have to say in, in doing this podcast and, and all of the people I talk to and all of the books I'm exposed to, the new scholarship I'm exposed to, uh, it is quite extraordinary, the type of stuff that's being written. It really is a wonderful uh, time for uh, the history of Eurasia in general. Um, but at the same time, you know, 
those those old revisionist versus traditionalist or however you want to frame it battles of the early 80s and stuff there also seemed to give a um and and this is just my own personal reflection you know being around arch getty and, and bill chase and people like this that um there was kind of a, a not a mission but a but a purpose right that that really kind of made these ideas matter and sometimes even as I, I read all this wonderful new scholarship, I still am now kind of wondering, okay, so what is the what is the purpose of this? What is why does this matter? Or or maybe it there doesn't need to be that purpose. Um, I don't know what you have to say about that. I think you're right. That is uh, the during the Cold War and during that those uh, revisionist traditionalists, whatever you want to call it. Uh, battles, there was a purpose, and it was to make normal, in a way, Soviet historiography. Not necessarily normalize the Soviet Union, but treat it in ways that other historiographies treated France or Germany, or even Nazi Germany, right? trying to find out what was happening and, and why, without polemic and without a glance always over your shoulder at what the powers that be might think. Uh, and it, it was a very healthy thing, and it was very exciting to do it. Uh, today, that particular purpose, uh, let's say that particular purpose disappeared for a while. Uh, and it, there, when we were more friendly to Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union and during the Yeltsin years, uh, there, there seemed to be none of that. Now we're back in a demonization period of Russia again, right? And, and Russia's always available. Russia is out there. And when you need uh, an enemy, uh, it's available. And of course, Russia will do terrible things just to confirm the worst ideas you'll have about Russia. So, you know, just as you think, oh, now we'll try to explain and understand what Putin is about and this and that. Oh, a plane gets shot down or an invasion takes place. Or, But of course, also, because of this anti-Russian bias, uh, and uh, which, you know, uh, runs like a red thread through through all of these generations, things are again distorted. I just read something the other day by a very prominent person about how the Russians started the war with Georgia in 2008. No, my friend, it was Saakashvili who started the war. He might have been provoked by Russians in a variety of ways, but he's the one who was bombing uh, Tsinvali, which is the capital of one of the provinces of the country he's supposed to be ruling, right? So, I mean, how can people do this 10 years after uh, these events? Anyway, uh, you know, the purpose might not be there, but we have a different purpose now. You guys have a different purpose. We all have this, which is to do the best history we can do, right? And set down the record that then can be used by future generations. Now, you've been a, 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 a staunch advocate of, of social history of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union in general. And two of your your most memorable essays, and both of them are in the red flag unfurled. Uh, you you they're polemics advocating for social history and against its critics. So why is a social history of of this? Let's say the Soviet Union in general and and the Russian Revolution in particular really important. What's amazing about the in intervention of Soviet uh, social history into the story of the revolution was how it completely turned that story on its head. When you had the older, what you might call uh, political history or ideological history that centered on personalities, ideas, etc., 
you had this view of the October Revolution as a coup d'etat, as kind of an artificial seizure of power by a conspiratorial group, etc. Now, there are certain elements of that story that certainly resonate and, and can be accepted. But when you look at social history, when people began to turn their lens, uh, as they did in the 1970s primarily and later, to the workers, to various groups uh, and uh, down below, to the role of women in February, to the role of the peasantry as the final legitimizer of the, of the new regime, etc., you got into a completely different picture. You saw uh, how popular, uh, at least in Petrograd and some of the cities in Baku, the Bolsheviks were, uh, how effective uh, their organization was, why they ultimately won the civil war, that it's not just terror, but it's also persuasion and what they stood for, uh, their own skills, etc. So it gives it, it 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 turned the picture around. And what was interesting is that the the revisionists of the October Revolution, that small group of us who were working on that, and the ones I write about in that essay toward a social history of the October Revolution, which should be called, by the way, toward a Marxist history of the October Revolution. But I wanted to publish it in the American Historical Review, so I made it toward a social history. You got to think strategically sometimes. Uh, um, that battle was won. So that view of, of October, despite the later books by Richard Pipes, uh, actually succeeded. And, and we moved aside. There was a much more serious and still ongoing uh, development and, and trend in historiography about the social history and its effects of Stalinism. So here, the most important players were, of course, Moshe Levin, my own mentor in some very serious sense, though I never studied with him formally. He was my friend. Uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick, my colleague for over a decade at Chicago, and a whole slew of people, including your mentors, uh, who wrote about these things. And that, that battle uh, still goes on because Stalinism is so fraught, right? But the social historians also change the view there as well. Uh, one has to explain why was Stalin so successful? Why was he so popular? Was it terror alone? Were there other ingredients that in a kind of perverse way legitimize his rule and the revolution? What's, what parts were successful? Collectivization seemed to be a disaster. Industrialization, as chaotic and, and ill-directed as it was, seemed to have been acceptable and, and a success. They did win the war. Who defeated fascism? The Soviets did, who won the Second World War basically in Eastern Europe and indeed in Europe, that, the Soviets, who ended the Holocaust, who liberated uh, Auschwitz, the Soviets did, the Red Army, the Soviet Army. Uh, these are important things, but, but they came out of this engagement uh, from looking at the bottom, at the middle, not just the top, not just Kremlinology. And historians uh, like uh, Moshe Levine and Sheila Fitzpatrick and so many others that you could name made an extraordinary contribution. And, and finally, um, you're a leftist, a Marxist. Um, what can the left learn from the history of the Soviet experiment? What can we take away from it? I, I certainly proudly wear the label leftist and Marxist. I. Uh, when you say you're a Marxist, of course, everyone has their own idea of what you mean. And it's I becoming that, more fashionable, though. <laughs> yes, is it again? Socialist certainly is, right? Socialist, They yeah. can't make up their mind what it is. Uh, <laughs> and in that essay, that opening essay in uh, Red Flag Unfurl, I tried to explain what I think is left of Marx in two senses. What remains of Marx, useful, what has to be rejected, 
uh, uh, what has to be set aside? And also, what's to the left of Marx? How do we now think about human emancipation, social justice, etc., uh, in the age we live in, which is hundreds, some years after Marx's uh, death? So that that's what that essay is about. And uh, and I I proudly say I'm a Marxist, so that that if people like me or they like the work, they say, oh, there might be there's something in this, right? But I'm not uh, I'm not orthodox in the sense that I I buy it all, you know. And so forth. So that's that seems to be the right approach, and that question is very good. What what the left can learn from the history of the Soviet experiment, and now here's a plug. I'm just now finishing today and sending off to Verso Volume Two of those essays, which is called uh, which is called Red Flag Wounded: uh, Historians, Stalinism, and the Fate of the Soviet Experiment. And the opening essay there is a talk that I gave throughout this country and elsewhere called Lessons of October. And, and it's, it's what we can learn. And I'd say to make it succinct, and I'm a socialist, obviously, uh, my view is we learned from the Soviet Union several important lessons. One, there is no socialism without democracy. From Western history and the present in America today, we learned there's no real democracy without socialism. That is, there, you cannot have a country like ours with this unbelievably obscene polarization of wealth, the role of money in politics, the gerrymandering, etc., which is all facilitated. You cannot have this unrestricted uh, neoliberal capitalism and also expect to have a really democratic state, that you need restraints, you need social programs, you need a different logic, a logic of the common good rather than personal and corporate profit. That's, that's the argument. Uh, from the Soviet side, you learn when a country is deeply polarized, when people come to power and neglect the people, when elites take over and go their own way for themselves, as they did ultimately in the early Soviet period, and then again under Yeltsin, uh, you, you lose the possibility of democracy. Let's not forget uh, who put Putin in power. Uh, there was a coup d'etat. Uh, in October 1993 by Yeltsin. He overthrew his own parliament. He pushed through a constitution, a constitution which created a strong presidency as long as the president was relatively weak and sick and alcoholic and had a heart condition, as Yeltsin did, okay. But then he put this rather dour, fairly well-built policeman in charge and you get what you get today. And by the way, that coup d'etat, that constitution was apologized and rationalized by all kinds of people in the West, including uh, American Sovietologists or post-Sovietologists uh, and so forth. So there are many lessons to be learned and, and uh, we don't have to be at every moment explicit about them, but that's what history is. History is the database, whether it's Soviet history or some other history, the database out of what we learn, what people have done, are able to do, or are likely to do. There's no substitute. It's the queen of social science. It's what we've got. But in a country like ours, it's neglected. It's peripheralized. It's marginalized. People don't take it seriously, or even leaders of the country don't even know about it. That was Ron Suni, the William H. Sewell Jr. Distinguished University Professor of History at the University of Michigan, Emeritus Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago, and Senior Researcher at the National Research University at the Higher School of Economics in St. Petersburg. He is the author of many books, 
including the Baku Commune 1917-1918, Class and Nationality in the Russian Revolution, Armenia in the 20th Century, The Making of the Georgian Nation, Looking Toward Ararat, Armenia in Modern History, The Revenge of the Past, Nationalism, Revolution, and the Collapse of the Soviet Union, The Soviet Experiment, Russia, the USSR, and the Successor States, and They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. His most recent book is Red Flag Unfurled, History, Historians, and the Russian Revolution, published by Verso. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Disorder! Disorder!